0: Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment
1: podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Well, uh, today's episode is with author Phil Cavell. He has written a book. It's called The Midlife Cyclist, the roadmap for the plus 40 rider who wants to train hard, ride fast, and stay healthy. And thank you so much, Phil, for making time to come on Cycling and Alignment today and uh, speak with myself and my audience. Appreciate your your time. You're welcome, Colby. It's a privilege to talk to you. So your publisher, I believe it was, reached out and asked me if I wanted to um, enjoy a copy of your book. I don't know how, uh, I think your publisher's name is Corinne. I'm kind of guessing that's a woman, but I don't know for sure. She yeah, Corinne.
0: Yeah. Yeah i never met her, obviously, because I, I'm I pub, I'm published through Bloomsbury in London. Okay. Um, so, uh, I, but um, yeah, I deal with a couple of people in the New York office, of which one is Crin, and she's very, she's devastatingly efficient.
1: It seems I'm, not assuming,
0: I'm assuming it's a she. Do you know what? We could be totally wrong here.
1: We could be wrong. <laughs> sorry, cr- sorry, Crin. Sorry, Crin. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of us have met you in person. Please correct us if we're wrong. So. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So he, she reached out uh, to give me a copy of your book. And, and to be honest, I didn't, I hadn't heard of it. I hadn't, hadn't read anything about it or didn't read any previews or anything. So I really didn't know what I was in for. And I saw the title and thought, "Mm, okay, we'll see what's up. And I got to be honest, I was so happy to open the pages of your book and read so many of your, your conversations and philosophies and ideas on, and explorations about midlife cyclists. You've got a lot of really fascinating points to make. I also really enjoyed your, your section on bike fitting and some of your philosophies on that as well. Uh, I would think it's safe to say that we have a lot of parallel ideas on fitting. And so I'd love to unpack a lot of what you've talked about in the book and, and, um, dissect a bit of that and then give people a proper shove to go off and buy themselves a copy and and dig into it as well. So, so Maybe we can start with you giving us a bit of an introduction. Tell us about who you are and how you started bike racing and then your path about how you got involved with bike fitting and some of your education and things like that.
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, I was a bike racer and uh, raced for a long time um, and came up through a time when you kind of raced everything. If you raced a bike, you raced cyclocross, you raced road, you raced crits, you raced mountain bikes. And that was just a great time, you know, late 80s, early 90s, just raced everything all the time Uh, and with a great group of friends in a club. And it just it was just living that dream of, you know, Tuesday nights was a a crit. Wednesday nights was a mountain bike race. Thursday nights was another crit. And then you went off somewhere and did a mountain bike race or a road race. somewhere. It's just great. Mm. So that's that was my life, you know, as a younger man. And just loved it. Just it saved me as a person, bike racing, cycling. It took me from quite an unhealthy lifestyle that I had in the the music industry to a very healthy lifestyle uh, at a time when I needed it. Looking back on that, I didn't I didn't really dignify that at the time with a, But, you know, actually, that's the case. Um, And then I got hurt. uh, And my friend, Julian, who I started CycleFit with, also got hurt. Um, And um, at the time, not much was known about, um, you know, you could get your knee or back fixed. But not much was known about what the underlying cause might be, uh, and how that might be lay in the relationship between the person and the bike. And so, so we were very interested in that from probably 1994, 95, um, which probably isn't, probably is. You know, that's probably um, uh, not that early in America, but it's certainly in Europe. We were the only ones thinking about that. So we uh, we got really interested in that subject, researched it. Reached out to people who we thought could be useful to us, um, be they orthopedic surgeons, physios, osteopaths, podiatrists, anybody, anybody that would talk to us about bike fitting or bikes or biomechanics. We we talked about it to them, and then um, we met Ben Sarota in I'm going to say 2001, um, and um, Ben became a really close friend. Ben's an anglophile anyway, loves England, loves Britain. Trained in London, as you know, he trained at the um, Oh, he he trained in uh, South London, actually. Uh, so that's where he, le- he learned his trade as a teenager and, and, and never needed an excuse to come to London. So we would go and see him in America. He would come and see us in London. And that friendship sort of that helped us coalesce uh, our bike fitting philosophies into a more coherent system using his school, the Sorota School. Uh, mm-hmm. And we ma- we made lots of great friends there. Lots of great friends who are still friends now um and this is going back 20 years now I guess mm-hmm. so that and that's how we started so then we started cycle in 2001 2002 and people just thought we were snake oil peddlers you know Europe wasn't really ready for it um, um but people kept coming to our doors and and uh using our services and then the world got out and it just built and built and built and right. uh and then more technology came along and more fitting systems came along and more people came into the industry. Yeah. So that's, that's,
1: that's, that's the short version, Colby. Okay. So it sounds like your fitting journey was really inspired by your injury and your colleague's injury as well. That kind of kind of opened that can of worms. And I've listened to a couple of your other conversations and podcasts and, and heard you talk about the concept of a macro absorber versus a micro adjuster. Yeah. your own transition in from the, the macro into the micro. And just so the audience is caught up on that, I think your sort of definition or terms for that are a macro adjuster, someone who can literally kind of get on the wrong bike, you know, by accident and go riding for hundred K and not really notice, or maybe think, Oh, that's a little funny. And then they yeah. just never seem to have issues, never seem to have challenges. They're not worried. They're not fussed about stretching or strength. They're just getting on a bike and smash pedals and things seem to work out. The that's micro right. adjusters. other end of the spectrum right the tinkerer the oh my saddle's you know two millimeters too high and i'm now my knees hurt or my hips hurt or my back hurts or or i just noticed i never felt right or i felt crooked on the bike those types of that type of universe yeah that's Um, right that concept's not mine colby the that
0: concept came from a a friend and colleague of ours uh phil burt and phil burt uh we met phil i'm 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 gonna say 2008 2009 uh, through british cycling and phil came and you know trained with us for a bit um and um we stayed in touch and he was doing all the british he was all doing all the fitting at the at the um academy you know at the, the the velodrome for M- manchester for all the team beat team gb he was yeah. also doing all the fitting for the sky team the nascent sky team mm-hmm. um and then we started a conference in 2012 called the international cycle fit conference uh, symposium, which where where we invited speakers from around the world to talk about related subjects to bite fitting, whatever that was. And Phil was one of our first speakers. Um, and so, and Phil came up with the concept. I think for that for that conference, he wanted to bring something to the conference, a, a new way to think about this, mm-hmm. uh, a, a new frame of reference. So He brought the whole idea of a macro absorber and a micro adjuster. Uh, and a micro absorber is somebody as you say who could just get on a bike and it could be the wrong size the wrong they don't care they'll ride it and they'll succeed on it and it'll be fine and then a micro adjuster is somebody at the other end of that spectrum yep. who is you know is the prince or princess of the pea where hmm. the slightest thing and they'll they'll feel it and they'll, they'll react to it, adapt around it it'll hurt it'll be agony and of course of course it's a spectrum um i'm not sure phil discussed it as a spectrum but I discuss it in the book as a spectrum and we're all in that, we're all in that spectrum somewhere. And actually probably we travel up and down a little bit. There's the outliers, um, but we're probably somewhere all on that spectrum somewhere more towards the center of the bell curve. And we use it as a, you know, we, we use it as a way to sort of sometimes contextualize a fit. We don't say, Oh, by the way, you're a macro absorber or a micro adjuster, but it's like, you know, you, you got, you must have those clients also where, you know, it's just, Everything's always a problem, and it's not, you know, um, uh, and it's just it it might be that they're, you know, physiologically they're incredibly um, uh, inflexible, or it could be the other way around. It could be they're so flexible that they're micro that they're they're hypermobile, and therefore they're never going to feel comfortable. Nothing feels comfortable to a hypermobile person because. they've got so much range they don't they never feel anchored in space Hmm. so you know so there's there's, sometimes there's two spectrums going on there the hypermobility stiff um, spectrum and then also the macro absorber micro adjuster spectrum um
1: yes. yes yes um so you may know i was trained by steve hogg as a fitter and he has a similar concept. Uh, he, he refers to it as a high level compensator. That would be the macro adjuster in, in Phil's language, same concept fundamentally, you know, they're, are athletes who get on the bike and they can ride a tricycle. Or I think the famous modern example is, uh, during Thomas, who's had yeah. several evolutions to his fit. Um, if you look at some of the old school photographs of him, when he was doing team pursuit with GB, I would, I would describe his position as pretty traditional, a little more seat set back a little lower. Now he's in this Forward and high, you know, position. And, and, um, I've definitely discussed that on some of my pods with other people. And, and I would argue that we saw a moment of the shortcoming of that design philosophy or that fit philosophy with Durant on, I think it was stage four of the Dauphine this year when he dumped it on a descent on a relatively benign or I'll say straightforward left hand corner rear wheel slip just right out from under. Now, this is a helicopter view. So who knows? I mean, maybe, you know, somebody spit on the road or he hit a leaf or, I don't know the details, but looking at it from afar, that was my kind of you know armchair diagnosis. Um and it's it I find it interesting, you know, in the sport that's so fascinated with marginal gains that we feel the need to try to optimize someone like Durant's position because I think he is pretty well known as a macro absorber or a high-level compensator. So it's kind of like, why are you tinkering with this? But I'm not his coach, I'm not his fitter. So uh, far be it from me to to critique someone else's methods. You know, I'm sure that he's got a lot of smart people, obviously, working around him, uh, the world's best. So there was probably a good reason for making that change, or at least someone's thought so at the time, and he obviously agreed to it. But it's great. We can all be armchair quarterbacks, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we are too, by the way. Wait, what's that? We are too. We do the We're, same thing. We
0: yeah, we we you know when the tours on all the, the races around. we Jules and I stand there in front of the TV, stroking our gray beards, going ah. <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. And, and, and we find with, a, you know, we find that there has been a change in the way that people are fitted in the pro peloton. Mm-hmm. You know, their guys are and the guys and, and girls are setting themselves up differently now. Yeah. And Jules and I talk, talk about this. And it's and one of the theories that we have is that they're they've got a, they're not setting themselves up in a position that's good for when they're, you know, 10 tenths on the rivet full gas or cruising in the bunch or climbing so that they're, they're not setting themselves up in a position which is kind of uh you know a, a reasonable position for all those things they're almost like they're choosing they're saying okay we're actually going to choose we're going to we're always going to ride the bike in the position as if we we're on 10 tenths trying to close a breakdown so it's like they've made that decision so we're going to have that forward long on the nose set up for um you know that kind of 10 tenths effort it seems to be like a trend in the bunch and you know, and I'm sure someone's done the maths on this. You know, I, 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 yeah. to me it's because sort of like, when because then when they go back on the saddle and try and chill, the saddle's too high. Yeah, you know, it's it, do you know what I mean? It's like they're 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 not mm-hmm. in a good place. So they then they end up just hanging out on the nose of the saddle mm-hmm. because that's the, the 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 set up to be on the nose of the saddle. Yeah, yeah, it's mystifying. You know, you'd think you'd think between us, you and I would have all the answers on that, and I really don't,
1: Colby. <laughs> that is interesting. That's an interesting observation. It makes me wonder though why okay, if you had a grand tour team and you had four riders who you knew were going to be riding the front for, you know, a few thousand kilometers then, and that was their goal. And then after that, you know, when the race explodes and they get to the mountains, their job is just to make the time cut. You could kind of see that logic. Like they've got to be on the front in the wind for multiple hours doing a pace line. So we're going to set them up to do that type of riding, but it still, it doesn't necessarily explain to me why you would set up your GC rider that way. Your GC rider ought to be set up to make the best power in the mountains, ostensibly. But it seems like the trend is for everyone to be set up that way. And I don't know, maybe again, this is painting with a broad brush. I mean, we go through the the pro peloton and find people who are still set up in a very kind of old school way, a little more setback, you know, less, uh, not a a 140 stem or whatever. Um, You can find those people. But as a general trend, I would agree. People are, the saddles are quite high. They're quite high forward. The bars are really slammed and they're just in that, prioritizing aerodynamics position which is which is interesting i remember working years ago this is going back many years i'm
0: going back to going back working with a rider who used to be a gc contender and then a transition to a super domestic and a super and a super nice guy by the way mm-hmm. and he and i worked all day on his position and then he and then he was going out in the afternoon or late afternoon for a training ride and i said okay fine so i'll meet you in the morning and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll catch up on how everything went on the train ride mm-hmm. and I'll come out. And so I we went out in the morning to see how the how it had gone, the changes. I mean, I'd made all these changes. I was so proud of myself. Colby. It's like, Oh my God, I've done, this is, you know, this is God's work I've done here. Um, you know, and I went out, to, I said, so, you know, what did you think about the position and, and anything I need to do? He said, no, I've turned it all back. I said, no, no, but what, everything? He said, yeah, yeah, I've taken it, I've done it all back. So oh. everything I did, it was like oh so depressing It's like, but you know it's just you could he couldn't change he could not change he wanted to sit on the nose of the saddle i'm like mm-hmm. looking at the pressure mapping you've got 24 percent loaded area you know yeah. that's that that's a lot that's a lot of pressure you know a so, spot. Yeah, yeah. that's right and but no so i got into sort of 48 percent loaded area different saddle different
1: position yeah. turned it all back but it yeah anyway yeah and that's so unique to cycling because it's such a repetitive sport. And as you mentioned this in the book, you know, in some ways the bike is so fixed and, and it's like, there are two parallel conversations we always have that highlight this. The one is you ride your bike all season. And then if, you know, sometime in August, you, you happen by the bike shop and your mechanic, if they're good mechanics, say how's your bike working? Oh, everything's fine. You know? Yeah. Brakes and shifting. Yeah, no problem. And then sure enough, you know, you go in the winter and then you get cables change in November sometime because they're starting to fall apart. And then you get on the first day with new cables and you're, you're going, wow, I can't believe how much better everything is. You know, I really let this go. Like the last two months, um, the, the change really strikes you and you could say the same thing about conditioning ourselves to the bike. That is when we get on the bike in the early season, it's like ah, I did my first few long rides, and my butt hurts, and my neck hurts, and my back hurts, and my shoulders hurt, and everything's a little bit sore. But you condition yourself to it so quickly. I think we equate it to just being out of condition or out of shape, right? And then you go through the whole season, and the bike becomes your home, and it becomes so you're so conditioned to the cockpit distance and the bar drop and the saddle nose angle and all those things that then when you get to the end of the season, it 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 really is your home. It's your kind of broken-in mattress. And then you take your two or three weeks off and you come back for your first ride. And it's like, whose bike is this? You know, how did I sit on this thing for so? this saddle is like a board or a fence post. And these bars are so far away. And, and you, you have that moment of insight. Like I really, or the other common one I get is I can't believe how small these shoes feel, but after a month of riding, you're just jamming your toes in there, your little piggies and they're all getting smashed. And it just doesn't matter supposedly and we accommodate all these, what are really fundamentally compromises in the yes. bike. And I think some of that is modern era equipment hasn't caught up. Uh, you phrase it beautifully in the book, you point out that basically bicycles are a Victorian contraption that we've just sort of clung onto for various reasons. Some political, some we'll say momentum of industry or, or um, difficulty in changing the momentum of the industry perhaps, but it's true. I mean, there's just these, simple, basic, fundamental mechanical devices. And I think you also said, you know, they didn't get it completely wrong, but, uh, I heard you speak in another pod about how if the UCI wasn't involved and people were a little less nostalgic, we might be riding around in different versions of gramob positions or supine positions, prone positions, you know, who knows, and probably going a lot faster. I mean, HPVs with fairings, they just destroy a normal bike in a time trial. Yeah. Now, whether or not you could race a criterium and that is It'd be a different style of event, for sure. City streets probably wouldn't be so great in a in a recumbent with a fairing. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've never seen one been yeah. Even events like that. But, yeah.
0: But, you, but yeah, but you, say, you raise a good point. I mean, I'm looking down at my laptop here, and it's got a QWERTY keyboard. And a, yeah. a QWERTY, keyboard, QWERTY keyboard is, you know, it's already on my laptop because it, it, you know, people have failed to innovate something better. QWERTY keyboards existed to stop the, cam, the, the keys jamming, um you know yep. 130 years ago well the, the keys don't jam anymore but we're still using a qwerty keyboard right and it's the same it's the same thing with a bicycle it's just something that's kind of been frozen in aspic and then we fall in love with it and it's the same thing with a qwerty keyboard it's just i'm used to it now so it's just it's going to keep going on for another 100 years probably yeah. there's no there's no real um, it, there's no real kind of momentum to change um, and I guess that's what I was talking about in the book, you know, just sort of back to first principles. Let's just look at first principles here. You know, this is this is not something your body evolved to do. You're making your body do this. And generally, your body does a great job of adapting around this silly thing you're making it do. But now and again, and especially as you get older, the body kind of goes, Hold on a second, this is this is one time around this block too many, and I'm in pain. Um, and And that's when, you know, you have the conversation with your clients and I do with my clients. Okay, that, you know, this is not just about the last 50 mile ride you did on this bike. It's not that isn't what hurt you. What hurt you was the 15,000 miles you did on the bike. um, And, you know, which kind of stressed the structures to the point where the last 50 was the the straw that broke the camel's back. And when you contextualize it like that, they understand the challenge. We need to get this. We need to get this right now. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you know, you talk about the tensile strength of muscle versus connective tissue, you know, tendons and ligaments. There's a, there's a massive difference between the strength of those. So it begs the question, well, why is it that so commonly in cycling? Yeah, we injure our muscles in an acute way. You know, we go out for a hard ride or we do intervals and we get sore, but a couple of days later, assuming you're, you know, doing things like sleeping, drinking water and eating good food, you're back to back to new most of the time. But a tendon, a ligament gets injured, and man, it can just drag on and on and on. So, how does it get injured? And the answer, of course, is just like you said, it's that repetitive stress. It's that thousands and thousands of little tiny stressors that slowly weaken the fibers. And then all of a sudden, you've got IT band syndrome or tendinitis of the patella, you know, patellar tendon or whatever. And then it's a whole mess, a yeah. bee's nest to get rid of, right? Yeah. 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 It is. Yeah. So, maybe I would love it if you would talk a little bit about some of what you observed, um, in terms of sport specific compensation patterns, you know, like you were just saying, we get on the bike, we adapt to it. And it's this marvelous machine. And, and you talk a little bit about the J shaped curve in your, in your book, me kind of indicating, I sort of think of it as a bell shaped curve. Like if you were sedentary, if you were overweight and really out of shape and you started riding a bike, of course your health would increase, right? If you went from nothing couch potato to cyclist, Initially, most people would get healthier. They would probably lose weight. They'd upregulate their metabolic rate. They would, they would start to condition their muscles, right? Um, but then, if you only cycle over a very long timeline, of course, especially depending on the exact type of cycling you're doing, eventually your your fitness or your health is going to start to plateau. And then, if you keep cycling and cycling and cycling, then we've got this sort of fall off, this cliff of of negative potentially negative health consequences. Now, some of that how where that cliff comes and how steep it is probably depends on where you are on the macro absorber micro adjuster spectrum and sort of your genetic card of general health we might say or or adaptability. But so some people just seem to be building in a bike and pedal forever and have have no downside, but I wonder if you might comment on we've got several kind of categories we can go. One is sort of the cardiac, you know, fibrosis of the cardiac muscle tissue. That part is quite interesting. And then we've got discussions around plaques and, um, cholesterol levels, which uh, there's also a lot of interesting data there you discuss in the book and kind of consequences of those. And I thought that part was really interesting, especially in particular about the plaques and the harder plaques versus the softer plaques and how the plot kind of twisted there. And then the separate side of that question would be what you see in the fit studio, as far as things like adaptive muscle shortening or postural compensations uh you know areas of strength and weakness in cyclists i know i have my own observations i'd like to contribute but i'd love to hear what you have to say on that and kind of what your thoughts are jeez that's a complex question it's we? a big one sorry I, yeah. I have a tendency to ask long-winded questions wow. so just yeah parse it into parse it into however you feel appropriate okay thank you um
0: well let's start with the, the let's start with the ahmed baghani j curve um because that's kind of where i started in the book actually so i was reading a lot of i'm not sure about america but i was reading lots in the uk press especially the tabloid populist press about um exercise is bad for middle aged people you know go and exercise and you'll die or and then the next week it would be like middle aged people aren't exercising enough they're getting fat and unhealthy and then and then another next month it would be like no middle aged people dropping dead because they're exercising too high. it's like you know oh my god you know it's just too much so you know and it and you know, so I've got you know all my clients, or you know, most of my clients are middle-aged, um, or you know, over forty at least. So it's like it's a concern for me. You know, they're asking me about this stuff, and I'm a bike fitter. I'm not a cardiologist. Luckily, one of my good friends and clients is a cardiologist and also an extremely good cyclist. So we started with him, and and he gave a lecture at Cycle Fit, um, and he gave a lecture at the same conference that Phil Burt lectured at. In fact, Phil Burt spoke first and then Nigel got up and spoke after him, Dr. Nigel Stevens. Um, and uh, he did say at the time, God, that's a that's a very tough act to follow, to speak after Phil Burt, who's a great speaker. Luckily, Nigel is, is a is a gifted speaker. But so, so, and then I went to the source material and spoke to interviewed Amber McGarney, who did a lot of the research. Uh, and then also another research cardiologist called Dr. Jim Parry Williams. And I was lucky enough to have another client of mine who's a cardiologist, Audrey Simiartis. So, you know, I was basically, I had access to four cardiologists, all cyclists. Actually, ama Mugani is not, not the same level as, but you know, they were interested in this whole veteran heart health subject. Um, and of course, I think you alluded to the fact that this is not binary. And in fact, I quote it in the book, Dr. Jemma Parry-Williams says, there's no purity in medicine. You want binary answers in cardiology and there aren't any, you know? So you've got to kind of, you've got to read all the research and then you've got to make the best guess based on all the research. But the research in some of these studies was showing that um, there was like a J curve. So all the all the benefits of doing exercise were kind of quite on quite low level um, exercise up to about 100, 150 kilometers a week. You were all good, you know, all your indicators were great. As you said, cholesterol got better, blood pressure came down. Everything was great. Exercise is also a natural statin. So that had a beneficial effect. Exercise is acutely inflammatory and cl- chronically anti inflammatory. That's also good. So it was all good. But then they saw this kind of deflection around about, you know, and it's not binary, but you know, they saw this deflection around a kind of 100, 150 kilometers, six, seven hours a week, where athletes were starting to, they would, the athletes would test had a high VO2, they had higher power outputs, but they also had more atherosclerotic plaques in their coronary arteries i said geez now we didn't expect to see that did we you know and so um and that's so and that, and that was alarming in a sense um but when you actually really sit down and talk to the people that did the research the longitudinal studies dr Jemmy parry williams Amo Magani, and really think about what they're saying um and don't be alarmist about it actually the morphology of the plaques themselves the morphology of the atherosclerotic plaques was different in the in the high level athletes than it was in the sedentary people or the low level athletes so they might have more plaques but they were more calcified calcified plaques are generally speaking not dangerous because they're not likely to rupture the plaques that are likely to rupture are the soft fatty ones, or the mixed morphology plaques that are calcified and soft fatty material? So, in a sense, there is some remodeling going on, but it might even be it might even be protective in itself. You don't know. So, you know, this is all speculation, of course, Cole, because we still the longitudinal studies are still going on. We don't know the answers, but it's not all the instant bad news that we thought it was.
1: Right.
0: Um, so, it's a
1: nuanced picture, is what I'm saying. Yep. 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 And that, and so just a um, point, we don't, we have to be very careful about which metric we're tracking and which one we tend to assign as, you know, air quotes, good or bad. Right. That's right. That's right.
0: So, yeah, I mean, between, between and six, seven hours training a week, it's, it's, you know, or cycling training, it, it, it's all good. Generally for, for the most part, it's, there it seems to be a deflection around about six, seven hours a week where there are some indicators that look like they're that they're, they're trending in the wrong direction but mm-hmm. as as i say in the book even that's more complex and it might well be that these these re, these this structural remodelling has a protective effect
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, so yeah and then you were talking about also about you know and on and, and how this how we, how we see this in the fit studio and you're quite right of course if you go and, if you if you start riding 150 200 miles a week you know, it's going to, you there's going to be structural changes in your body. Mm-hmm. You know, no question, you know, and, and, you know, you, you shouldn't think that your body is fixed. You know, there are going to be these changes in these adaptations and it's, in, and you're, and you should be cognizant of them and you should react to them in terms of how your bike set
1: up. Yeah. Yeah. So I know I see, I've got a kind of a list in my head of specific cycling adaptations, you know, and you, you unpack this at one point in your book, you were talking about, I think you said you had coffee or tea or something with, uh, a rider and you kind of had a typical, very slight posture, you know, slight kyphosis, you know, head forward head posture, kind of, kind of almost not very capable of walking around the cafe too. Well, of course, some of that might be because of cycling shoes, but, and then you got on the bike and you realized what, uh, what an outstanding cyclist this gentleman was, right? He was a former pro, I believe. I think you said he raced the tour or raced at the world level. And and you went out on on the day and you could see that he had the the suplesse, you know, the supple muscle in his pedaling. and, And he knew exactly how to position himself in the peloton in the group and to be efficient and hide at the right moment and exert himself at the right moment. He picked up on all those cues as we all do on group rides, right? And you know i think that um the point i try to make regularly on my pod is that i don't have a problem i try really hard not to tell people how to live their lives per se you know i i think that's just a fool's errand and also it's quite rude to be honest but i also want people to understand what they're doing to their bodies when they only ride their bikes i'd like people to be educated about that choice so that they can see that not always but probably a good majority of the time if people only ride they're going to run into some health complications later on from just cycling. And I'm not saying don't ride your bike. I'm saying, be educated about what it's doing to your body. You know, understand that having the spine inflection all the time is not the best thing for your spine. And you're probably basically because of the verticalization of the face while you're in the riding position, especially if you ride a very low arrow road bike position, you know, that puts a lot of Extension in the cervical spine in the neck, and that has implications for how your body will remodel itself. Just as you said, it's always responding to stress. And when we have little areas of instability in the body, that generates a piezoelectric charge, which then the body responds to by remodeling. It builds stability around those unstable areas. So when you ride a bike, that's so repetitive, and you've got a little instability in the hip or the lower back or other areas, we can we can see how that will develop problems. Your body will respond by kind of gluing everything together. And then you get this calcification of tissue, and then you're stuck in that position, right? And then when you want to move and do other things, like pick up your newspaper or prevent yourself from falling down, when you go to get your newspaper and you start to, you hit a bit of ice, life can become problematic, right? So um, I don't know if you had further thoughts on what you see. If you had to list, make a short list of compensation, compensatory patterns you see in cyclists, what might be on that list?
0: Yeah, I mean, and and you're absolutely right, and I think that's why I say in the book that it's 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 slightly counterintuitive, but the older you get, if you want to increase your cycling performance, you actually need to do less cycling. You actually, you know, it's it's in it, it, and it seems like it seems counterintuitive, but it's true. You know, if you're mm-hmm. I'm I'm 60 next birthday, um, you know, and it's I can't just cycle anymore. It's not good for me. I need to. I love cycling. It's my sport, but if I want to be a better cyclist and keep cycling longer. I actually need to do a bit less cycling and a bit more paddle boarding, resistance training, Nordic walking, the occasional run. I need to do more stuff. I need yeah. to keep myself in an extension. And in terms of adaptive patterns, you're absolutely right. You know, we start to store up tightness uh, and bad posture. We start, you know, as you say, we get a, a kyphosis in our back. We're always in a, a flexed hip, flexed spine. Now, flexed hip and flexed spine are not great. We didn't evolve to have a flexed hip and flexed spine, right. uh, really. You know, um, we evolved to you know run and jump and stand up and occasionally squat round a fire. We did, we didn't evolve, you know, to sit in slouch postures. They're, it's unnatural for us, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, the bike does encourage people, even me and and I know better, to slouch. You get tired. I went for a ride today, got tired, mm-hmm. groveled home and then started to slouch. I could feel myself doing it. Hips started it. to hurt. So yeah, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. And so it's counterintuitive, but the older athlete actually needs to cycle a bit less. Start consciously cognizant, being cognizant about, okay, I need to drop a cycling session out now and okay. do something which puts my spine in extension. Swimming, mm-hmm. paddle boarding, resistance, training, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and we need to, we need to try and cover off those compensations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I thought your, your recommendation for paddle was great because it's extension. It's got some thoracic rotation, right? Yeah. It works yeah. balance. Yeah. And if you fall off, the consequences aren't too much. You're just going to get wet. Right. So it's not like falling off a snowboard or, you know, a balance beam or something risky that, you know, anyone 40 plus doesn't really want to, well, most people, I would say don't really want to mess with. So, and yeah, that, and then, it, it, Sorry, I was about to say, and the great thing is you can kind of get your, you know, your
0: regular group of people you go riding with, you know, um, you know, they all get paddle boards, So six or eight of you head out for a couple of hours on the paddle boards. It's the same. It's the same team, you know, doing something athletic in the wilderness, enjoying fresh air. But, you know, guess what? You're an extension, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as you say, using your upper body, using your core. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a really
1: good thing to do. Yeah. And you also bring up the really good point about sarcopenia afflicting older riders, which is loss of muscle mass, right? Both the, yeah. it's some of the cells go away in muscles or we'll say senesce, which is a fancy way to say die, right? It is. And, or, and some of them just shrink depending on your usage. But I think it's also important to point out that cycling doesn't, you know, we throw around the word strength a lot in cycling. Oh, he was so strong. She's so strong and her legs look so strong and and that's fine. But if we're being technical, I think it's probably a misnomer to say that cycling makes legs strong. It really doesn't. Uh, in my opinion, I like to phrase it more along the lines of cycling makes your legs more durable or fatigue resistant. That's really what you're doing. You're building fatigue resistance in the sagittal plane, right? And to at the peril of the other planes of movement, that is the frontal plane and transverse plane. But also we're not extending and flexing. Well, we might be flexing the hip fully. We're not extending and flexing the knee fully and we're not extending the hip fully. So that means we're not working the full range of motion, but also there's no eccentric load in cycling unless you're on a fixed gear in San Francisco, you know, and you've got a back pedal to prevent yourself from running a red light or whatever. So, you know, to really build, I mean, of course you make your muscles stronger when you cycle, but to build strength and especially to build maximum force We'll say by far, the more effective way I'll say to, be, to do that is in the gym with concentric and eccentric load, where you can isolate a single muscle if you want to, or better yet, co-contract a group of muscles around a multi-joint exercise, but do it with such a load that you really actually provide a strong eccentric stimulus. And thus you lengthen the fibers while they're under load, which actually, when you go, you know, 12 reps or less, rips the fibers apart. And then your muscle's all damaged and looks like someone drove over it with a with a meat grinder in a microscope. But then the, the cells, of course, heal and glue back together, and that's how you get stronger. So the way to offset sarcopenia, and you talk about this in the book, is to trade out one or two of your weekly cycling sessions with solid strength sessions and lift heavy objects. Simply put, right.
0: That's right. And I totally agree with you. And I, I'm not sure I say this in the book, but I should have done. I mean, the fact is, the fact sitting on a fitting on an alpine climb at your at your absolute threshold is not going to actually preserve muscle mass loss because it's too it's too low a load. I know that sounds ridiculous, yes. but it's too low. It's too low a load. If I ask you to do a box jump, you can probably produce 2000 watts. That's mm-hmm. load. You know, yes. sitting there at 300 watts is not muscular load. It might be aerobic load. It mm-hmm. might be cardiovascular load. But trust me, it's not muscular load. Yes. And so you can sit there and do as many three hundred watt sessions as you like. It won't. It won't offset sarcopenia. Well said. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. And, and I think a lot of people don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's. Uh, I'm not sure if I say that in that so in that so many words in the book, but I, I should have done. But you're, what you said is absolutely right. Um, and so you you know you have, you end up having to drop a session out um, of your shrinking. kind of your
1: aerobic. Exactly yeah.
0: right. Yeah, it just yeah, yeah.
1: you know as cyclists we're so addicted to our we're in love with our little neurotransmitter bomb we get from going out on the bike and whipping up all the happy chemicals and you know yeah. enjoying nature. I mean that's why we love cycling. That's why I love cycling to yeah, be outdoors yeah. and and see the things. But we'd be better served by trading it in for a gym session. And and yeah, um, I think part of the 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 confusion on that is that when you're riding, you know, 15 minutes into a maximal effort you feel as though you are pushing on the pedals at maximum or close to maximum force. You're pushing so hard, but the, the load of the aerobic system, the time delay of that system to catch up is what gives us that sensation of hardness. But you're absolutely right. You know, you jump, you do one single box jump and you, you can produce way more torque in the gym doing deadlifts or squats or box jumps way, way more torque and more load on the muscle. Like that's why you can go in the gym in one session, your first session in the off season and do what you think isn't that hard and all of a sudden you can't walk you know for four or five days you're struggling to go down the stairs right so that's, right. that's no. right yeah
0: no i i totally i totally agree with that and and of course i think i think and I don't have any evidence to support this but i think there is evidence that we also lose the, the slow twitch and the fast twitch muscle fibers at a different uh, rate we tend mm-hmm. to lose fast twitch quicker so those those are the guys we want to hang on to you know yeah. and, and the way and the way to train those is is by load
1: no, yep. There's no other way. Yep. Maximal contraction. Yeah. Yep. Have you played around? I'd be curious to know, have you played around with or had any of your athletes play around with uh like an extreme isometric contraction? Have you heard anything about that or played with that or familiar no, with No, no, I I'm I'm open to these things, probably. I try
0: and be, you know, I try and stick to my piece of the pizza. I don't try and I I am, you know, essentially by trade I'm a bike fitter. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. Obviously, work with physios and podiatrists and strength and conditioning coaches all day long but i'm pretty quick to hand off to people it's like i'm i'm gonna stick with my piece of pizza here and and you know this is what i want you to achieve but that person over there is much better to achieve it with you than i am you know i'm not i know enough to be dangerous Mm -hmm. frankly um so i i'm we are as a company pretty quick to hand off you know this is what we want you to achieve go away and achieve it with somebody who knows
1: a lot more than i do that's smart that's smart i think that's a trap a lot of fitters can fall into is to try to be all things. I've certainly fallen into that trap uh, at times. You know, it's someone hands you their blood work when they come in for a bike fit It's going, you're going, hmm, okay, <laughs> what do I know about this? How much can I Google in five minutes? Like, that's just not yeah. the best way to serve the client, right? Yeah. So, well, I just brought it up because we were talking about sarcopenia and, and maintenance of muscle mass. And um, I'd be happy to drop this link in the show notes where people are interested. I may have mentioned it in other pods, but there's a technique I've used myself and I've used it with some of my athletes and it's called an extreme isometric And really, it's pretty simple. You just go into a deep lunge, for example, and you try to hold it for five minutes straight. And what's simple and elegant about this um, technique is that, one, you can apply a lot of load to someone without them having great technique, right? So this is a challenge I have. Is like I recommend to some of my clients, hey, you really need to get in the gym but then they send you a video of them doing a squat or a deadlift or a lunge. And you're going, Oh man, this is not good because we don't want to add strength to a dysfunctional movement pattern. So it gets really complicated very quickly. You have to make sure the client has the right movement patterns. Otherwise you're training poor movement engrams and they can injure themselves or, or make themselves strong in a way that doesn't really suit the structure of their body or add to their functional wellness. Um, but the ISO, you can, it's pretty hard to mess it up, but what's cool about it is after about, I don't know, maybe two, three minutes. It's safe to say the slow twitch fibers are all pretty smoked. And then you get to see every muscle fiber in your quadriceps turn on and fire. And by three and a half, four minutes in, you're, you're pretty much seeing stars. They're quite challenging. But of course, since there's no movement, it's an isometric. You're just holding that deep squat or that deep lunge. The chance of you doing repetitive damage to any tendons is zero, right? Also, you don't get eccentric load, but you still fire all the fibers. So it's kind of a little, we might say, biohack into the strength world because it it can fire so many fibers of the muscle, maybe all of them if you go deep enough. But at the same time, there's no eccentric load. So you're super smoked for five or 10 minutes afterwards, but then you can go ride your bike. And after a couple of minutes of loosening up, you feel pretty good in my experience. So anyway, there's a seed planted on that. It's kind of a funky little exercise. But um yeah. I also wanted to go into a bit in your book you talk about the autonomic nervous system and you get into parasympathetic and sympathetic, right? and our colloquial terms for that are parasympathetic is rest and digest and sympathetic is fight or flight, right, or we'll say to be a bit naughtier the three f's fight, flight, and yeah, feather <laughs> yeah so so you talk about that balance and how and and some of the science that goes into studying that and You know, I'll let you unpack that a bit, but I've got a few thoughts on it. It seems, you know, what you were mentioning is that athletes, generally speaking, from what we've seen, have higher vagal tone and vagal tone is a way to sort of, it's a way for us to attempt to quantify how someone's nervous system responds to external stress. And the higher your your vagal tone is, ostensibly, the more sort of calm you are under fire or in stress. And you have one great quote in the book that I'll I'll paraphrase a little bit. You talk about how basically we're negotiating the modern world with an alarm system that's you know hundreds of thousands of years old, right? And I thought that was a great way to put it. What I'd like to know is if you think that you know because an endurance athletes or athletes who are training regularly have this sort of increased vagal tone, which theoretically makes them better at negotiating the modern world, it's almost like. It reminds me of a of a hypertonic muscle. A hypertonic muscle is a muscle, of course, that's kind of always turned on, you know, at thirty or forty percent or whatever, some sub- maximal percentage. And then, of course, after a while, that muscle starts to hurt typically. And what's interesting about a hypertonic muscle is, you know, for example, if you have poor posture, your spinal erectors might be hypertonic because they're sort of preventing you from tipping forward to give people an example they can relate to. And so your back hurts because your muscles are always kind of turned on. A hypertonic muscle is simultaneously, It's fatigued because it's always on, but it's also weak because it hasn't ever been gone. It has never been worked to a hundred percent and then gone to zero. So when a therapist sees someone with a hypertonic muscle, a lot of times the prescription will be, well, we're going to train it really hard so that it learns to turn on all the way. And then hopefully it learns to turn off all the way. And we start to work it to its end range, zero percent, 100%. And it seems to me that we could maybe make a parallel between the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system balance with elite athletes in the sense that when you go ride your bike really hard on a group ride for 90 minutes and you smash yourself into oblivion and you're, you know, got the taste of blood in your lungs and your heart rate's super high, then you come home and it's almost like, ah, oh, I was really stressed about this inbox that's got, you know, however many emails in it, but now I just kind of don't really care that much. <laughs> and, and what's the balance there? Is it that the athlete, is, it, is I guess the, my question is, is the athlete really more robust at dealing with those modern 20, 2021 day stresses of emails and social media and people always being on demand and all those things? Or is it, that, is it more of a bypass and that what they're doing is they're hitting themselves so hard and blasting themselves with so much intensity that then the volume just gets relatively turned down on the other stuff? It's not that they're more effective at dealing with it. It's more that they're just ignoring it. I don't know maybe those are two in the same thing sorry that was a very philosophical question That's and great. Also I think long you you covered so many spots there it's
0: great <laughs> you asked, The questions are great i mean the thing is you you kind of answered your own question there i mean what can i add to that mm. i mean i guess i guess the question is this so you go out and do a hard training ride, and you and so it's in the moment it's acutely inflammatory acutely inflammatory and the hope is that it's chronically anti-inflammatory and your inflammation burden drops after the after the training ride um but if you then if you're somebody who's got a lot of stress in your work and your life and you drink a lot of coffee a lot of alcohol you don't eat very good food and then you you keep training harder and harder and harder are you just laying inflammation layering inflammation and stress on layering inf- an inflammation and stress and my point in the book is probably you are so you've got so so, what you should be tracking, which metric, metric should you be tracking um, to 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 check that? and And, as you say, vagal tone means that probably heart rate not a very good one. Your heart rate is going to be low because you're you've got high vagal tone in your fit. So there's no point in tracking heart rate unless it's completely off the scale. Mm-hmm. So you start looking at other metrics, and then the best rate heart the best metric to look at is heart rate variability, so the beat to beat variation. and beat to beat variation is also very good at controlling this you know the autonomic nervous system. So, um, and and the, my contention in the book is—is is it a contention? My discussion that I open up in the book is: is there something about the way that athletes, you know, middle-aged athletes train their kind of their work ethic, their training ethic, which is um, which is exposing them to too much inflammation and stress? And is that fundamentally unhealthy and also bad for their performance and bad for their life, happiness, and enjoyment? And my and my contention is, yeah, probably it is. Probably middle-aged athletes, my age, or and or younger, are doing too much high-intensity stuff, which is essentially too inflammatory. They're just layering on infl- inflammation and not allowing their bodies to recover sufficiently. Not sleeping uh-huh. properly. So if you know, so if if their sleep's being interrupted by alcohol, they're not eating good food. They're taking too many stimulants. There's too much stress at work. Home life is not happy. Now, this is all just stress and inflammation mm-hmm. uh, at a time when, you know, at a time when, when, you know, we're, we're not at, not at our peak anymore. So I'm just trying to be, I'm just trying to be pragmatic in the book. Sensible is what I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm asked. That's why I'm asking these questions, Colby. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying I have all the answers. I mean, I, I, I hope the book doesn't come across as, be, as being, um, what's the word? Bombastic. Cause I don't feel like that. I just feel like these are discussions that are worth having. Um, I'm you know, I'm not saying I've got all the answers. I just put forward some suggestions.
1: I agree. I I uh I don't think your book came across as bombastic at all. I think it was a great exploration of these issues, and and I really appreciate you digging into it. It's you know, as I mentioned, this is a lot of themes that I discuss with my writers. I think I think part of what's happening is that we are living in a sport that has a broken cultural model that is okay, look at look at our user group now. We've either got people such as yourself and myself who are Uh, guys and gals who used to race many years ago. And part of the broken model there is that we're always comparing ourselves to the past. you know. And I've lived in Boulder, Colorado, my entire life. I'll be 50 on my next birthday. So I'm just a decade behind you. But the, the discussion applies to you and I equally because we're in parallel paths in that sense. And so I've ridden here forever. So I know all the old climbs, the old rides I used to do, the old six hour rides where I'd go smash myself on this climb and do intervals on this road. And it's so easy to be in that comparative mindset of, well, now I'm only riding for 95 minutes or 75 minutes. And, you know, I went up that one hill and that was pretty hard. And it's easy to kind of look at myself as less than, but we also have to recognize a couple of things as you pointed out. And I I really, I'll preempt this comment by saying, I really don't like the, the, well, getting old sucks conversation. Like I, I want nothing to do with that. To me, that's a pile of crap. It's just a It's just a negative Nancy, you know, downer conversation. Like to me, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. I feel I'm the smartest, best, most well-educated. I'm accomplishing the most in my days with the best amount of balance. I've got the best relationships I've ever had in my life. It's not to say, as you said, I'm not trying to be bombastic. I don't know everything far from it. I'm always learning. I'm always growing, always stepping forward. But man, I was a moron when I was 21 years old. I don't want to go back to that age. I lived it to the best I could then, I can look back on it and say, the older I am, the faster I was. That's a great, (laughs) great bar statement, you're right. But um, I don't don't pine for those eras, nor do I want to be out smashing the six hour rides anymore. Like I've moved on in my life and we have to recognize that every year or decade we, we all have in our lives, we add to our lives, the more responsibility we gain the more entanglements our lives tend to have as a general rule. I mean, there are people who make global changes and, you know, sell their houses and go down to one suitcase and go travel the world and things like that. But that aside, most of us accumulate things like mortgages and houses and cars and pets and more dental appointments and all the things and grandchildren eventually. Right. And, and these are things that add to our life burden. So when we continue to think that when our lives were simpler and we had less responsibility that now we can, can, or even should carry the same ride load. That's, that's in my opinion, that's part of a broken way of looking at the, the sport. We have to evolve with it and still carry it with us. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy cycling. It doesn't mean we're bad or old or slow. We're just, the sport has evolved into a different era. The other part of it is the people who are just now getting into the sport and they believe that they ought to, or should, one of my least favorite words, train kind of like pros do. You know, and pros go ride, you know, 160 kilometers, 180 kilometers, 100, 200 K on the weekends. That's what they do. And they're 24 or, or 28 or 19, but I'm 48. And in order to be fast, that's what I have to do. But that's just a, a broken formula, in my opinion. It doesn't work for most athletes. It's not beneficial. It's not the way to practice the sport. I, yeah. I just, again, I'm, I'm definitely crossing my line into telling people how to live their lives. Try not to do that, but people can enjoy the sport however they like. But again, it's about being educated about the consequences and the massive amounts of inflammatory, um, acute response we're giving your body. And I think you're absolutely right. And when we layer that on on ride on ride on ride, it just builds over time. And then we add the stresses of modern life. I mean, you you have some really good lists of things in your book that we are encountering in 2021. I mean, look at the amount of toxicity we have in our environment, in our air. Right, uh, in our we have five seasons in Colorado now we have spring, summer, winter, fall, and fire season. Fire season is about five <laughs> weeks long. Oh my god, and you have to decide if you're uh, gonna ride outside. I mean, the fires in California, we're getting smoke from four states away, and it's i mean, the sky is black, it's crazy. And oh on man. those days, you wake up and you go, Hmm, does it make sense for me to go ride outside today? I really want to go do that group ride, but the AQI is 160 or 180, like this is not smart. So, and and you know, to go to circle back to your conversation about parasympathetic stress and sympathetic stress. I believe that even on a non, on a, on a level that we're not conscious of, our body has to have mechanisms to register things like poor water quality, poor air quality, right? That has to raise some, there's gotta be some way for us to register that your body certainly knows when there's smoke in the air. Even if you don't consciously feel it scratching your throat or see it with your eyes, poor food quality, you know, microplastics and glyphosate and all the things that we're bombarded with in our just because there's so many people on the planet. So I think that in itself probably raises to some percentage the level of baseline, we'll say daily stress in most people. Now I could be wrong. This is conjecture and hypothesis on my part. I don't know if our body really has ways to sense these types of chemicals, but I'd be willing to bet it does. And, and so we consider all these loads and as you were saying like we've got we've got all these life loads that happen things like food and relationships and such. this is just a, a, the scientific way to say that right is allostatic load. It's sort of your global stress level right and all this is the really important concept that I think people miss sometimes all stress summates right So when you throw your leg over the top tube just because you put on your shorts And you, you know, use your chamois cream. It doesn't mean that all your, your life stress and your work stress just disappears into the ether. Now you're going to do that hard ride and you're still carrying that load of the fight you had with your daughter or the, you know, the fact that your dog woke you up at four in the morning because he threw up on your floor and you couldn't, took you an hour to get back to sleep or all these little things that add up, right? So I don't yeah, even know if that was a question. does is me rambling. I would love to hear No, that. no, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting.
0: You're, I mean, and the thing is, the thing is, and I think Dr. Jeremy perry Williams make the makes this point in the book, or uh, you know, is that in a way your body doesn't know the difference between you fighting an alligator and writing a criterion. Yes. It just doesn't, it, you know, on, on on some level, on a conscious intellectual level, of course you understand, but on a right. biological level, you know, all your body knows is you're stressing the bejesus out of it. you know and 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 is that because you're in mortal danger or is it because you're having fun and obviously there's some you know your body is getting some you know some nice you know neurotransmitter actions and some nice fuzzies but on a fundamental level when you stress your body you know it doesn't know whether you're it's it's struggling to survive or it's actually having fun because that's an intellectual thing and so it's that's why i was trying to make that's why i spent a lot of time talking about the autonomic system nervous system, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. But I think people need to understand, midlife athletes need to understand what that is and mm-hmm. actually start to think about it and say, okay, what state am I in right now, this moment in time, where mm-hmm. am I? Am I in a parasympathetic state or a sympathetic state? Or am I transitioning? Right. Because you know, you go into a you go into a sympathetic state, you know, on express training, you come down a rope ladder, you know, it's, you know, and it's knowing that mechanism that, okay, you transition from parasympathetic to sympathetic in the blink of an eye but the, the the climb down back into a parasympathetic state is different and it's slower and it yep. has to be, you know, and, and, and I, you know, and I use the example in my book about my dog, you know, who who hears a squirrel in the middle of the night and goes bonkers with a sub, his subatomic bark he's got, <laughs> you know, he, he's a, he's a, he's a wolf. So, you know, he's a, he's an apex predator. So mm. the moment that the danger's passed, he's, he doesn't care. He, it doesn't matter. All he wants to do is kill it anyway. Yep. You know, whereas me, I'm not an apex predator, you know, I'm a, <laughs> You know so it takes me a lot longer to come down that rope ladder mm. um you know he's asleep snoring and i'm like i'm still yep. stressed you know yeah so it's just trying to get people to think about that you know and what state they're in mm. uh and be considerate and kind to their psyche and their body as they as they marry training and life and responsibilities and jobs and all the rest of it and aspiration it's like mm-hmm. you know Give yourself a bit of a break, you know yeah. you're trying to ask a, you're trying to ask a lot of yourself here, you know um and it'll be a lot easier if you can get yourself into a sympathetic state. and Dr. Jemma Perry Williams also raises another point she's she's an inspirational person I have to say she really is. but she raises another point and it, it's a difficult point for me to raise in the book is that well, are women better at transitioning mm. we can't make from a from a sympathetic to a parasympathetic state or you know is there something about the male psyche that we don't have this central governor or we don't it, do we do things differently and it's a funny it's a strange question to ask because it's you know i've been out i was out today with riding in a group and and the, the fittest rider in our group quite a long way was a woman rider and mm-hmm. she was fast and she rode hard mm-hmm. um but you know there seems to be is there a sense in which Men don't know when to stop. You know, is there something? And or or, or is that an illusion? I don't know. I mean, it's just a question that Dr. Gemma Parry Williams raised. And so I thought about it and put it in the book. You know, do we do we transact that differently our autonomic nervous system? Yeah.
1: Um I don't know. Don't know the answer. Yeah. It's so interesting if you think about the tribal role that women probably played, you know, it was more staying back at the cave or the hut or the yurt or whatever with the children. And being on watch, and certainly women—you could argue—have more of a propensity for worry. And that, if you if you consider the tribal relationship, that probably makes sense, because the men were off hunting and you know spearing mastodons into into holes or you know whatever they were battling to. And there's a high probability that they wouldn't come home on any given day. And then there's challenges, right? Um, And so, from that perspective, my instinct on this, thinking about this problem, just sort of as a a philosophical perspective, like, well, to a certain degree, women, I think I, I would, it would seems to me, my intuition is that women probably have a lower level kind of constant burn on that kind of sympathetic load. Whereas men are probably just like their physique. They're more capable of raising it quickly and high and, and immediately acutely to deal with an, in, in an, an incumbent threat. Um, and then there's gotta be that post it's like, you know, after the race, everybody stands around and they tell their war stories, right? Like, yeah, man, then I was in this corner and that guy tacked and I barely hung onto his wheel. And then somehow I managed to come around him and win the preem. Or then I got dropped on that hill. And then somehow I caught on the descent and then I don't, I don't know. I just felt great. I drank a bottle and ate a bar. And then but the next thing you knew, I was in the break and they're telling all their stories. And it's like that. It's, it's like the the chaos after the storm kind of has to unwind and, and express itself. And it's, there's a social component to that, but I think there's a neurological component of like the replay and the reliving and sort of swimming in the dopamine of that experience. Um, And that's probably part of their descent, but you know, when we're driving to the market and someone steals our parking spot or almost hits us and then flips us off and we get in a a fight with them, hopefully it doesn't happen to everybody. I try not to have that happen, but (laughs) you know, there's, there's no like moment afterwards where you get to kind of sit around with your tribe mates and talk in a funny way about how you killed the mastodon or how the guy stole your parking spot. You're just stewing it for a while. And it kind of, it kind of ruminates in your head and, and probably adds to that stress level for probably a fair number of hours, unless as you point out in the book, we've got some tools we can use to help decelerate the momentum of that um, sympathetic load, right? And and yeah. point out, I think one of the great tools you bring up is breath work and being in yeah. touch with the breath. Some people might be turned off by the term breath work, like oh, I don't want to go do a Wim Hof thing or whatever. And you don't have to do it that way. It can just simply be attention to the breath and in particular to the longer exhale, right? Which is directly yes. associated with uh acetylcholine levels and calming, upregulating parasympathetic and downregulating sympathetic, right? It's a very simple technique. Yeah, that's right, and, and and you're absolutely right. And I remember listening to a radio
0: program in in this country. We have a radio program called the Today Program, which is a news program. And in the morning, this doctor was on the program for one reason or another. I can't remember why. And the presenter said, "Well, what what is this square breathing? What is this?" And he, and he, and the doctor went, "Oh, okay. Well, I want me to do it then." And he just he gave an example of square breathing and breathing in for four and out for five. And you could just hear the whole you could hear the whole nation sort of just relax. I was in the car driving, but oh my god, I'm just. It just felt felt the kind of the waves of relaxation come over me. This doctor was so good at it, mm. and it's like it's just so it was such a, it's completely free, and mm. it's just br- brilliant advice, you know. Yeah. And and the other thing you were saying there, Colby, it's like the more I, as I wrote the the older I get, the more I am just convinced that women are just actually superior, frankly.
1: I agree one hundred percent.
0: Do you know what I mean? I just think yeah. I just think well, yeah. they just seem to deal with the world better than we do. <laughs> and, I, and i and i and i actually extend that to being athletic i think they are better athletes i think that there'll come a time quite soon when certainly midlife athletes will be hanging we won't be hanging on to their wheels anymore they're just better immune systems they seem to be better regulated and deal with stress better Yeah, they just seem to be superior
1: mm. that's interesting
0: yeah i know um, it's controversial i know it's controversial
1: i mean maybe it's maybe, maybe i mean it depends on what your kind of belief system is around equality and men and women and all that and I'll just say, you know, I study a lot of Paul Check, and he teaches a course called equal, but not the same. And I think that's a great way to phrase it. You know, Um, women, I mean, just in case the audience doesn't know, you know, women also have the ability to, their corpus callosum is more far better developed than men. So basically that means they can use both sides of their brain more effectively than we can, whereas we're sort of stuck in hunting mode or math mode or whatever mode. We tend to be in theory better single taskers although that proves to be kind of a mess sometimes for a lot of men that i know myself included yeah, um, <laughs> but it's it's so interesting you know in the fit studio i kind of keep this mental model of we all have these checklists i think as fitters of how people approach us how do they come in the door what are what are they exhibiting at that moment what you know being careful about the language we use to convey with our clients because i've seen a lot of pt's Say, oh, your glutes don't turn on, and then the client kind of holds on to that as their story. So, I think of it as, you know, how are you exhibiting yourself right now? What is the client displaying at this moment? What are their tendencies? What does that What does that indicate might be the case? And, you know, for the decade I've been fitting, I've seen. I mean, of course, also I have to Sorry, I have to predicate this statement with the obvious concept that we're seeing a skewed, we'll say. user group or, or, um, we're getting a, we're getting a distorted batch. We're not seeing what is representative of humanity on the whole, because first of all, we're bike fitters. So we're seeing cyclists, but then secondly, you know, it's very rare that a high level compensator or a macro, um, adapter, uh, would, or macro absorber, excuse me, would come through our door because they don't have any problems. So it's very rare that they would pay for a bike fit because they don't perceive that they need one. Um, and there's occasionally you get those macro observers who are like, ah, I want to optimize my performance. So I'll go get a bike fit. So that's fine. But we get the broken toys, the land of misfit and broken toys is, is what we tend to deal with. But that said, in all my years of fitting, I've had maybe one or two men who have come through where I've done their, their, uh, initial pre-fit screening, which for me is a great cook FMS that's modified for my own stuff. And then some check assessments and some other things that I've kind of just developed over the years, kind of my own special blend of what I see. I've had one or two males who have just literally been like a 10 out of 10 on everything, you know, flown through it. But I have these women who come through who just are 10 out of 10. But what's interesting is I've seen several of them who have no athletic background and I'm watching them do a deep squat and a lunge. They're doing everything perfectly. They've got not only pretty ideal joint range of motion, but, really optimal control of their bodies. Great proprioception seem to generate force. Well, no complaint of injuries. They're just there to optimize their fit. And I'm always asking them like, so you must be a gymnast. You know, you must have had years as a gymnast. No. Did you have years as a, as a rower or some other sport? And I've had multiple women come through and they have no athletic background. They have basically done nothing, but they're this like perfect specimen of physical ability. So I guess that kind of supports what you're saying. (laughs) I'm, yeah, but yeah.
0: Well, I think you say in the book. I mean, I think that the, the, you know, um, I think it's Professor Philip Goulders in the book, you know, and, and he says, you know, it's like we you know we, you know, we've evolved to do different things, and we evolved to kind of make a, you know, men evolve to, in a sense, kind of build muscle quickly, um, yeah. uh, you know, and then and then die quickly. That's that, that's kind of our track. And, and women had to hang around a bit longer, so to to oh. so they needed superior immune systems and et cetera, et cetera, better coping mechanisms. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, this, I guess this stuff we'll never know. You know, I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, but yeah, um,
1: yeah it's interesting stuff. It's a very interesting subject. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And another point you make in the book is about how basically we need to acknowledge, I mean, this is one of your fundamental premises, and we need to acknowledge the fact that as you know, 50-year-old men or 60-year-old men or humans, were are really, I think you said genetically kind of obsolete, right? I mean, it was only a few hundred years ago where the life expectancy of a human was somewhere in the mid-30s, right? So the fact that we're even alive right now is is it's new territory when compared to the historic lifespan of human of the human race. Yes. And And that's the basic kind of question you pose in your book, I think, which is like, okay, we're alive longer now than ever because of our modern lifestyles and our air conditioning and all the medical interventions we have to keep us alive and the access we have to food and shelter and safety, et cetera, and healthcare. So that's great. But now we've also got this added complication of these people have decided to go out and ride this Victorian contraption really, really hard and push themselves to maximal levels of effort regularly. And we don't really know the consequences or the implications of what that does to the human body. We're not even theoretically supposed to be alive at this point. So now, now we're adding these layers of all this cultural oddities on top of it. Um, I think it's Terrence McKenna who said, you know, culture is not your friend. And I guess this is maybe an extension of that discussion to a degree because cycling is a very much a cultural phenomenon, right? I mean, everything about it is artificially contrived. Um, Yeah, I I love it. It's super cool sport. It's a great way to see the world. And it blesses people's lives. But yeah. So I didn't know if you had anything else to add to that kind of the basic premise of the book, as far as us being. I think I'm um, butchering your words a little bit, you know, no, no, (laughs) no.
0: No, I think you paraphrased it better than I could have done, actually, Colby. And that's exactly right. The first premise of the book is exactly that, that we're genetically obsolete at 50. You know, it's a miracle we're alive. You know, yeah. all our all our ancestors would not be alive at this age. And now here we are trying to stress our bodies in a way which, you know, um, uh, is is completely uncharted water. We crash test dummies, frankly. And yeah. that's that that is the central premise of the book, which is yeah. great because, you know, it's fun. But what, what are we doing? It's an exp- it's a grand experiment. So yeah. because we don't have the longitudinal studies, we're not the other end of this. We kind of have to make these suppositions about what's happening.
1: Mm-hmm. And the
0: best way to make suppositions, if you're going to make suppositions, is make informed ones. So, you know, that, hence the book is, you know, has got a, an illustrious list of people who are are well-informed, endocrinologists, cardiologists, team doctors, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went out my way to interview and talk to all of them. Mm. Um, and then try and create a narrative
1: a that weave, weave them all together that was that was the idea really yeah I think you've done an outstanding job of that. I think it's a it's a very poignant book for so much of my clientele you know I coach quite a few riders and they definitely fit the profile of this book, not all of them, but a lot of them and um we've obviously seen an explosion of cycling in the last you know you mentioned the lanceification of cycling and and since his era and how he's um Made the sport so much more prevalent in the news for for Americans in particular, but also worldwide. He clearly touched some people in different ways, and then of course there was the whole burning ship that went down with that, and the the Oprah scandal, and or not that Oprah was the scandal. Lance was the scandal, but anyway, we all know that story. So, is is that controversial? I mean, I you know when I was writing that section of the book, I
0: mean, I you know I didn't think about how this would be received in America. Mm. I, I didn't really think about how it would be received in the great in the, in the UK, but is that? I mean, that, I mean, I don't know if it's controversial or not. I know that there's people that don't like Lance and like Lance and whatever. Yeah. I know mean, I, I wasn't really talking about that. I was just talking about the sociological effect of Lance.
1: Is yep. what I was yep. talking about. Yep, which was a great point. I mean, I think you mentioned one of your other podcasts. You, you, when you saw him win worlds, I think at the, he was 21 when he won worlds in was it Oslo? No way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was an incredible win, and and who knows what his you know program was at that point or whatever. I mean independent of that, it's clear that Lance was an absolute alpha male as an athlete, but there are a lot of people who do not like him. And I don't know if it's controversial for me, it's not in my circles, the people that I hang out with, like no one have any problem talking about simultaneously the impact that Lance had on the sport financially, uh, socially, and, and he grew the sport. And then, you know, there was certainly a wave of people who believed his story for the longest time. And, you know, I was a pro. So I I knew what was up from the beginning. I'll say, um, I knew enough people to know Lance directly. And I, I just, where there's smoke, there's fire. I could, I could, I figured it out. (laughs) Um, no, not, not claiming to be any rocket scientist there on that aspect, but there were plenty of clues, but I, I wouldn't say it's controversial to talk about his simultaneously, the good he's done for the sport in a sense. And then also the fact that clearly he was, he treated a lot of people really poorly. Um, he's a very strong polarizing personality. Clearly, if you're not with me, you're an against me type, and and so I don't know. I think it is what it is. People accept it for for him being a mixed bag, but you know, there's the old saying like any news is good news, and that all that news brought attention to cycling. Yeah, growth, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I saw it from you know
0: from my perspective as somebody who had raised for a long time and uh, i just saw this new new cohort of people coming in from different sports they were migrating from rugby and squash and mm. soccer and it's like it's, it's suddenly their 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 meeting place for cycling's like oh this is fantastic mm. and they were you know and it, and he ha- he had a catalyzing effect in that yeah um and so uh, um and he also had a catalyzing effect i think in the cancer community and i saw that firsthand with clients coming in who had cancer or they had a relative who had cancer yep. and that was the reason they were they were cycling yep. uh, and it was and it was it was you know and it was um, poignant to hear their stories you know mm. uh, and to, and they, you know, they came in sometimes they came in with a book in that in their hand you know and that's why they were there and they'd never ridden a bike before and then four years later you you know you, you were seeing them and they were they were actually a very decent athlete, you know, yeah. very decent athlete. It's great, isn't it? I mean, that's, you know, I, I take away everything else, you know, they became a fabulous athlete and a healthy person mm-hmm. um, because they they were chasing this, you know, this dream, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I don't, that, yeah, you know, I'm not, that's the point I was trying to make about the last vacation of cycling is like it, 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 it's undeniable what he, the effect that he had. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of it's a shame but you know that 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 era back in the early 2000s i mean my god you know mm-hmm. it was incredible it um, was
1: that- yeah yeah and and you know by the time he had his his oprah interviews and fall from grace officially I, at that point i suppose for a lot of people it didn't really matter if he had gotten them in the sport in the first place they were already addicted at that point anyway that's right you know and i i agree with that that's and that, and i, I and I remember saying at the time,
0: people, I remember reading things and listening to things, people saying no, people are gonna fall out of love with cycling. He's gonna, you know, you know, it's the scandal's gonna take people out of cycling. So I, I don't think it will. I think mm. people are now in it for their own reasons now. They love it, they see the benefits, yeah. you know, they stay fit, but they also explore the world and meet people and see things. It's like they they get it, you know. They, this is a new generation of people that get what cycling is, you know. Mm. Um, and I think that's
1: proven to be true. Yeah. You know, people have that said the sport is of course changing because now I, I don't know if it's the same for you guys there but here road racing in the us is really quite honestly it's dying um oh really yeah it really is the number of road events we have here not only in my home state of colorado but just in the us has plummeted in the last few years absolutely gone south um and and also there are just so many more cars here, more and more people. This is why we're having this gravel explosion because people will not want to ride on the roads anymore. It's just, it's really changing the scope of the sport. And again, growing up here in Boulder and riding here for 35 years, there are roads that I won't ride on now that I used to ride all the time when I was 17 and 18. Some of it was, I didn't know any better, but it's most of it is just the volume of traffic, just like most places, you know, the more people we've got almost, almost 8 billion people on this planet. That's a lot of people and they tend to, flock this is an area of growth here along the front range people have been moving here so and covid kind of gave that another acceleration but the sport is is changing here road racing is really um it's not dead but it is the numbers of events you can participate in are have drastically declined when i was young i could do a three-day stage race in almost every ski town all summer long via road race time trial criterion kind of format and different big name skiers vale copper mountain telluride stuff you might have heard of there even and now none of that exists none of it it's uh business park criteriums and a few road races way out on the plains middle of nowhere and then an occasional proper road race that's a point to point with hills in it we have very very few of those in colorado so it's it's a bit sad i mean i'm i'm not to the point where i would want to do that stuff anyway i've kind of moved past that warrior phase of my cycling career where I want to go conquer all the things and smash the Watts. I'm more just inclined to go for a a solid mountain bike ride with my buddies on the weekend or whatever, or maybe I'll do a gravel race here and there. But, um, so it doesn't affect me too much personally, but it's sad to see. And, you know, I will say I do have some clients locally. And if we had a Tuesday night criterium, that was a rideable distance from my house. I would go do it with them just to be the coach and be the, the fly on the wall and watch them and see what happens. And then that helps me coach them and and watch other people ride you know i'm always looking at people on the bike as a fitter it's it's there's nothing better than watching other people ride because you learn so much about human movement it's like the infinite fractal of complexity you could stu- I'll study the human bike for the rest of my life and still not understand it but don't really have those opportunities here i what about in the uk are you guys still is the road scene just as strong as it ever has been yeah i think it is I think it's
0: really strong. I think racing is really strong in the UK right now. I, um, I don't race myself anymore, so it's, it's hard for me to say, but I, I think it's really strong. Um, um, I, I, I don't get the sense that it's fading away. It's changing, I think. Um, and and like, like, like the US, we know we've got a strong gravel trend now, which is great. Um, but yeah, slightly, you were trying to get a cyclocross race now in London, around London area. And it's like, it's rammed. It's, you know, it's, hmm. you've got to book early, you know? So I think there's this explosion of racing now. Um, which I think is a, I, I, and I think it's a healthy thing. And I think what's really healthy, in, in certainly in London, is that there's lots of lo, lots of kids getting into racing. Where they Saturday morning kids racing groups. Hearn Hill has, you know, Hern become almost this little, which is like a little tiny little concrete velodrome yeah. in South London, has become like a talent center. Hmm. So many young pro cyclists are coming out of Hearn Hill. Okay, um, so I, I I do think there's it's some strong, some really strong roots there in in the UK and certainly in London youth racing and. It's great you know and they uh, and, and the circuits are all developing these kind of youth programs which is great get young kids cycling and racing get them into the sport um, yeah. and you look at someone like tom Pidcock, you know i don't know if he's made a, any I mean, made any um a splash in the u.s but you know it, um you know he's he's one of been a client of ours for a while i mean you know he, he's he's you know he's the thing he just won the won the Olympic mountain bike race. But you know, he's so young to win Olympic mountain bike race. He's 21, you know, one or 20. It's amazing. Yeah. So that they get these kids are getting
1: very, very good, very, very young. Yep. Yep. There's a lot of um young riders, and especially with the crossover between the cyclocross guys coming to, you know, now be competitive at the world tour level, and then riders like Tom who are racing mountain bike and also riding at the world tour level. That's yeah. exciting. It gives a lot of people, you know, it almost brings us back to the first point of. Uh, the first thing you said is, I grew up racing and I did back then you just did all the disciplines cross, mountain, road, track, right? And I had the same thing going on here. I went out and bought a really cheap cross bike. And of course, I was riding around on 28, you know, Richie max tires pumped to probably 65 psi or something totally horrible. And I bought a mountain bike with no fork because it was, you know, lighter. And I bought a track bike somehow after mowing lawns. And then I, I raced my road bike and man what an awesome way to begin the sport to have that those four arrows in your quiver it teaches you a lot of things and one thing i learned quickly is that I was pretty atrocious at cyclocross but it took me a long time to not suck at it um so that was it's like ballroom dance it's more like ballroom dancing than cycling isn't it
0: it's a different thing cyclocross it really is
1: yeah and you mentioned hern hill so do you know uh gary beckett by any chance
0: no I... should i
1: uh he, he... Played a role in the management of Hernhill, Hill, I believe, for a number of years, and he's been in cycling forever. And he was my swan year at the Six Days uh, for pretty much. I've, I'm sure every Six Day I did just about. Um, and he's worked with with Wiggins a lot and on and off the year. So I just didn't, right. but yeah. Anyway, just had to bring. So you up. know Herne, you know of Hern Hill, then? I know of it. I've never ridden that track. I've I've raced, of course, in Manchester quite a bit, but um, yeah, I've never never ridden Hernhill. Hill, but yeah, definitely know about it. Gary's got some good old uh, photos. He'll post on Instagram every once in a while, of, like Wiggins, you know, riding around when he was eighteen on Hearn Hill, you know, being pulled. I did.
0: Good. I did a Criterion with Wiggins. I, I mean, I remember this is going back. I've got. I'm trying to think when it was 97, 98. Okay. And he he rocked up to um, Hillingdon, the Criterion circuit in West London, and I was on the downslope of my not very illustrious cycling career anyway. And he he rocked up. And he was, I could, how, would he, how old would he be in 97, 98? I trying to think how old would he be, but he, he was a kid. He was a kid yeah. anyway, yeah. 80, yeah. 80 yeah. yeah. And he was astonishing. I mean, he was just, he was, He had his coaches by the trackside telling him to do things.
1: Mm-hmm. And then he'd
0: go off and take, he'd go off and take a lap out the bunch and then he'd come back. Yeah. And he just, yeah, playing with us, you know, like
1: <laughs> it's <was> unbelievable. <laughs> That's a, another great thing about cycling is you have those moments where you get to ride with riders of that, class you know there aren't many other sports where you get that intermixing potential you know yeah. it's not like if you're going to show up to your walk down to the park you're not going to be shooting hoops with michael jordan it doesn't work that way in basketball right most likely yeah. so yeah yeah yeah
0: and i was chatting i remember riding around chatting to him at the time i mean and it was like i mean, you know it was just it was funny because it's like you know and it, he was so good and there was some decent riders there you know there wasn't like it wasn't like it was just wobbly wheelers ride it was it was a really good it was quite a good bunch and he was just still made us look so bad you know and he was only 17 or 18 yeah
1: yeah hilarious he's a machine amazing yeah well phil uh i don't want to take any more of your time today i really appreciate you um coming on board and speaking to my audience and um sharing your thoughts with us and talking about your book was there anything else you wanted to mention before we we sign off and talk about your socials and where people can find you and such. Uh,
0: I think we've covered it all. I think you've, I think your insights into the book and, and the subjects around the book are are very deep and well thought through Colby. Uh, the book is out on Bloomsbury. Um, it's called the midlife cyclist. Uh, I,
1: I, you know, I, I hope, I hope, I hope your listeners enjoy it. Me too. Um, definitely. I recommend it. We're going to do, a, I'll, I'll post a cover, a shot of your cover for the social media if that's all right. And that's great. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. You have a website or do, can people follow you on social media or anything like that? Yeah. So they could follow me on Twitter if they want to. Uh,
0: my. That's a good point. So they could just search me, Phil Cavell. It comes up. Um, okay. yeah, they can follow me on Twitter. Um, and um, they can also, um, the CycleFit website is quite a good one. Uh, I always posted lots of journals on the CycleFit website. I've just posted a really, I think, very interesting journal at the moment on pelvic pain versus saddle pain, which I think is, to me, oh. a really, is a, a cutting-edge subject, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the difference between pelvic pain and saddle pain, and how do you treat them differently? Um, and that journal's just gone up. So I'm always putting journals up, like, you know, th- those kinds of pieces up on the CycleFit website that you don't make it into the book, uh, mm-hmm. probably a little bit kind of more exploratory um, so yeah, CyperFit website and, and also my Twitter feed.
1: Wonderful. I will, I'll check out that article on uh sal versus public pin. That sounds interesting. I think you're going to like that one
0: because I, th- yeah. I think it might provoke. Yeah. Yeah. Feel free to email me about that. Cause I think you might, I'd be interested to know what you think.
1: Uh, your right. own insights into that. Wonderful. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Yeah. Do you guys do a lot of, uh, SMP saddles or what are your, what are your go-to saddle brands? I got to ask. What's the most? Yeah, yeah. I mean we're we're really saddle ag- saddle
0: agnostic, Colby. Mm. I mean, I you know, I'm always looking for that magic saddle that works for everybody, aren't you? I you know I I mean I I find men's saddles are pretty good. Mm. I'm just really struggling for that breakthrough women's saddle. like got it, that's the one. And I just don't have it, you know, and it obviously it doesn't exist, but yeah, you know, yep. um, mm. and so I think men are pretty well catered for with saddles. I think there's a lot more to do with women's saddles,
1: personally. Mm. I would agree with that. Women are definitely have it. Uh, they're ice skating uphill in the saddle world right now. Unfortunately, I found I found about uh, a handful of women who really like the new Mimic, the specialized oh, yeah. models. And then yeah, the other side of the fence is get that thing away from me. It tends to be very polarizing in my experience. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely right.
0: I get exactly that opinion with the Mimic saddle. Interesting. You know? uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I
1: still think there's a lot more work that companies can do for women's saddles, frankly. There's yeah. more to do. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's some anatomical challenges there for them. Um, I ha- sure. I will say, I think the SMP is close to the magic saddle for me with most men. I've got overwhelming success. And I try very hard to be agnostic, honestly. But I have so many men who come in and try it and they are like, wow, this thing's amazing. I've never had a saddle that disappears like this. Um, it's but- certainly not everybody, but the percentages are quite high. Which
0: one? Which which one? Because I hear this a lot with S&P, and I've tried S&P with clients, and um, and I've had some success with it. But okay. the, uh, to, I find the S&P range quite confusing. It's too big. I like which which ones? What's your go-to saddle in the S&P range?
1: So what I do? So there are kind of two families, right? There's the Forma Dynamic family, and then there's the composite or or uh, Volcore family, and. And when I say family, what I mean is the base is exactly the same. What they do is increase in padding. So what I do is I always test saddles on the bony end first. So I put them on the Forma, which is literally a, it's a carbon thermoplastic base with no padding. It's just leather only. And then I put them back to back with that on the other one from the other family, which would be the composite or the Volcor. The names are like, these are great saddles, but the names are ridiculous. Volcor sounds yeah. like something out of Star Trek, but yeah. The composite and Volcor are identical, except that the Volcor is six millimeters wider. So if the rider's a little on the bigger stature side, I'd use the Volcor. If they're on the smaller side, I put them on composite. And usually, when I put them on those two saddles back to back with no padding, they can pretty quickly tell me this one's better, this one's worse, or vice versa. And then from there, we can go up in padding as needed. And they have light, medium, or thick padding. And I generally shoe them towards the the bonier end of things when they're in doubt and let them test it. Then I give them a saddle for a couple of weeks, make them ride it, give me feedback. And then we come back and based on what they tell me, then I end up having a good, usually a good formula for that. But the key with SMP is because you're supporting the ischium, the, it's really, a, you have to know what you're doing because the offset from the bottom bracket, the height and the saddle nose angle all have to be ex, like completely dialed. It's the opposite of, for example, a Physique Arion which is like a football field long. So offset doesn't really matter because the saddle is going to move around and therefore height doesn't really matter. And then nose angle kind of basically has to be plus or minus zero because otherwise they're sliding off the nose all the time. So the SMP is the opposite. It supports the the bony ischium rather than the soft tissue. So the placement has to be exact. And what I found is athletes come to me commonly saying, oh yeah, I tried an SMP four years ago and I loved it for 20 minutes and then I hated it. And what that tells me is it wasn't quite in the right place because there's there's so little padding on them and they're on you're sitting on it with the bone contact that if it's not placed precisely right you'll be fighting it the whole time and then it just won't feel right that's what angle experience. do you what angle do you run the nose at what starting what's the, what are you run the nose I, at? i'm starting at around four degrees nose down on the nose of course yeah um three for someone with less salivar drop i'd be around three For someone with a lot more saddle bar drop i'd be five five and a half maybe even six as long as the front part isn't level or lower then you've still got some purchase in the front to keep them from you know having too much weight in the bars or typewritering out to the nose and then having to do the scoot back all those problems that we see which not incidentally i was watching the olympic tt coverage the other day and even the winning riders the you know even ghana is still typewritering out to the edge of the saddle i mean this goes back to Victorian contraptions. Like these saddles are they're not the right design. And then we all saw Tony Martin's sandpaper disaster at Worlds, whenever it was six years ago, right? Remember that? I mean, this is what riders are resulting to at the world level. Like,
0: yeah, I mean, hello.
1: You I guys are not making. I'm sorry, like <laughs> I gotta call it out. There's several problems with modern bikes, but TT saddles is obviously one of them. Yeah. We've got the Olympic champion scooting, typewritering out to the nose of his saddle and scooting back performing at the highest level of sport and he's still having this problem this is a bike design problem it's not an athlete stability problem it's bike design anyway I'm so with you I'm with you I'm with you yeah four, I, four I, degrees I, four and a half degrees is common for me for a racer with an smp with a four or dynamic four and a half degrees measured on the nose or across the whole saddle the whole saddle the whole saddle yeah from the high okay. range, from the
0: very tail uh, to fine. the nose yeah fine yeah we you and i should have a chat about this because I'm, I'm really interested in smp saddles <laughs> i want to do more with it
1: I'd be happy really to, to chat with you sometime. Um, as much as our audience may be liking this, we can we can jump on another call sometime and yeah. Perfect. I'd love, I'd love to love compare to notes and learn from you as well. It'd be great. Oh, other way around. Okay. Uh, well it's been
0: a delight to talk, Colby. If you ever find yourself in London, let me know and then we'll and we'll hang out, have a coffee and and
1: maybe that'd be wonderful. Water. That'd be wonderful. And same for you if you ever find your way in Colorado. I don't know why you would exactly, but maybe you'll be here someday. There's great riding, so yeah. All great. right. Love talking right. to you. All right. Thank you very much, Phil. Have a good night, Toby. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Attention space monkeys, public service announcement. Really technically it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Which again is self-evident. Gratitude.